Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas Studios. I hate these guys. I don't know why you don't, and I'll be in the car. This is the Press Box. Makeup stuff. Tyler Bischoff. That player is known as the Scrabble Jackass and is then handed the box top for any further rule clarifications. Adam Candy. I can't hate him. He is so transparent in his self-interest that I kind of respect him. Would I buy a car from him? On ESPN Las Vegas. Ed Graney is on his way to Indiana this morning to cover UNLV and Notre Dame. So we have Adam Candy filling in. Adam, have you ever wanted to get on a plane and fly to uh, South Bend, Indiana before? Not a single time in my life. Not <laughs> once. I do not envy Ed Graney, but uh, he's a man of the people and a man of his job. I think one of the the biggest differences for people that cover college sports versus professional sports is the cities you have to go to to cover college sports are just tiny towns in the middle of nowhere. I don't even know how you get to South Bend, Indiana. I, don't, I, I think mean, I think Ed's flying into Indianapolis, but maybe it's closer to Chicago. Who knows? Yeah, a lot of people go into Chicago and do it that way. No, I do not envy, especially in the <laughs> conference you come from, having some of the uh, uh, schools you have to get to. Good luck getting to Oxford and Starkville, Mississippi. Is that why they made the former mayor of South Bend the head of transportation? Because he was like, yeah, it's really hard to get here. <laughs> I'll figure it out for you. All right, here we go. The first bite. Oh, I don't have it pulled up. I'm an idiot. How many games can the Raiders win in a row after the bye week? Here are the next six games for the Las Vegas Raiders. They are home against the Houston Texans on Sunday. Then they go to New Orleans. They go to Jacksonville. They're home against the Colts. They go to Denver and they go to Seattle. This team is currently one and four. If they were to go four and two in the next six, they would be at five and six headed into the final part of the season. So, Adam, when we look at sort of these next six games, how many do you think the Raiders win and how many do you think they need to win for us to be talking about them as a legitimate uh, playoff team? In order for them to get in the playoff picture in this conference, they got to go five and one. I don't see how anything less than that puts them in a legitimate place to think that they're going to be able to win this thing when they're going to still have to play Kansas City again, when they're still going to have the Chargers again. It's not, and they're going to have San Francisco down the stretch as well. It's not like this thing gets any easier for the Raiders. What do I think they'll probably do? Well, what we've seen with the Raiders is they're generally a one-score team game, uh, game team. So what do I think they'll do? I think they'll go three and three. Yeah, like you look through these games and they all sound, it sounds like a nice schedule, right? There's no team in the next six that you look at as a Super Bowl contender. There's no team in the next six that you'd even really, I think, put in tier two of potential contenders this year. And a lot of teams that are probably going to miss the playoffs. But like you said, the Raiders are basically in that same spot. I bet all of these teams are looking at the Raiders the same way the Raiders are looking at this schedule, or Raiders fans, however you want to phrase that, are looking at this schedule as the Raiders haven't been that good this season. Um, you can look at uh, different power rankings or whatever you want. If you just go by pro football focus team ranks, the Raiders are 24th. The teams in this six-game stretch are 8th, 11th, 22nd, 21st, 27th, and 28th. So there's not. it's not like the Raiders are clearly significantly better than any of these teams that they are going to play in this six-game stretch. 
And I think the expectation that they're going to rip off a, like you said, five and one is probably what's needed to be in a legitimate playoff conversation. I think it's foolish. I just don't, they're not good. They haven't shown that they're good enough that they're going to win five of six games against other NFL teams, right? It's just, we haven't seen that from them. And do you, okay, let me ask you this on the one score game part of it. Do you hold on to that as a, hey, that'll even out in the Raiders' favor and they're going to go on a, you know, f- they're going to win their next four one-score games because they've lost four straight one-score games? Or is that just foolish way of thinking about these next six anyways? Over time, what tends to happen is these things even out season to season more than they do within a single season. So uh, the Raiders were 7-2 and two in one-score games last year. They're... They've lost four games this year by one score. It just goes to show that over time, the NFL is a really even league. So, no, I don't know that that necessarily just evens out this year. And when you talk about the Raiders are not a team that is necessarily going to rip through, I think part of it is because the one thing we expected the Raiders to be really good at, throwing the ball, they haven't been. Like The reason this offense has had any level of success has been because Josh Jacobs has been a lot better than we expected and they've been able to run block. But we have not seen the version of Devontae Adams that we thought was going to be dominant. They haven't had health from Hunter Renfro and Darren Waller. And without a passing offense in the modern NFL, I can't tell you any team's going on a winning streak. Yeah, they're basically their path to victory on what we've seen is Josh Jacobs gets a lot of carries. They're, they run the ball effectively. They get a few big passing plays and they win a game 24 to 20. Like that that's sort of the the plan. And if that's the best case scenario, if that's what you're going for, you're very unlikely to actually blow a team out. And if you're not going to blow a team out, then you're a Derek Carr fumble or or something from losing that game 20 to 17 instead of winning it 24 to 20. So it it leaves them a very small margin for error. Now, on the passing game, Hunter Renfro uh, was a sudden addition to the injury report yesterday. He did not practice on Thursday uh, with a hip injury is what was listed on the injury report. He was not on the injury report on Wednesday. He practiced in full, was perfectly fine, apparently, on Wednesday. So that's a big surprise from yesterday. Potentially could end up missing the game. Darren Waller has already basically said he's not going to play. Uh, he told Jim Trotter that he it would be very tough for him to play on Sunday. So we've already seen this passing game underperform based on what our expectations were. If they don't have Darren Waller and if they don't have Hunter Renfro, what do they look like against the Texans? Are we getting Mac Hollins eight for 112 again? No, I think you're getting Devontae Adams with 75 targets <laughs> and Josh Jacobs with 35 <laughs> runs. Like that's basically you just have to feed what you have at that point. And the one thing that worries me a little bit about this game from the Raiders' perspective in terms of throwing the ball is that both Steven Nelson and Derek Stingley Jr. have been pretty good overall in coverage. Now, they don't have a great pass rush, and I'm not about to tell you Davis Mills is going to come in and win on the road against the Raiders, but I am going to tell you Davis Mills went into Jacksonville and won a couple of weeks ago. So the Houston Texans are not as bad as we expect them to be. So the Raiders have to be able to put up some points, not a lot. I mean, you might not need more than 21 to beat Houston, but you're going to basically see Houston, I think. I think Levy Smith is going to go heavy boxes on defense all day long and just say to the Raiders, beat me throwing. 
And if they can, then the Raiders will win. They'll win handily. And if they can't, then this is going to be a game that comes down to the end. Is it as simple as if the Raiders can hit Devontae Adams for like two big plays down the field, they win the game? Yes, without question. If you can have the kind of plays that they did against Kansas City where you get Devontae Adams free, then you're going to be in great shape. But remember, one of those in particular was a scheme play, right? Where it's fourth and one. Everybody expects you to smash the ball up the middle and you throw it long, which was a brilliant choice. But at the same time, it's not the most repeatable thing in the world. I think the key is you have to be up on the Raiders by at least four, because if it's three, they're somehow going to get Carlson in range and tie the game up, and it's just going to continue in perpetuity that way. So you have to, once you've got a four-point lead, you're golden. (laughs) What if the Raiders get two drives after that and can kick two field goals? Well then, but then the other team will also have kicked field goals. It's you gotta you gotta win they by four. They never stop. Okay. Yeah, they just never stop kicking. What if the, 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 this the, is a cat taped to a buttered piece of toast? It'll just sit there and spin until someone gets four points. See, but the key last year when the Raiders went on that uh, four-game win streak to make the playoffs, Daniel Carlson was like the, the best kicker, not named Justin Tucker, we've seen. And the other key was like their opponents missed, I think, like four, maybe five field goals in that four-game stretch. So the other team. They'll walk in here and miss field goals. Just Daniel Car- Daniel Carson might miss the extra point, though. That's the problem. Adam Candy, who is the Houston Texans kicker? Kai Forbath. Does anyone know if that's right? You say that with confidence, <laughs> yeah. so I'm, yeah. you made me believe it. you think that's right. I think I'm – he was last year? <laughs> I'm on it. I'm on it. <laughs> is he this year? Hold on. I'm just going to look up Kai Forbath really quick. Was I right? I don't know if I was right. I hope I was right. I don't think I was right. I mean, I the only know. reason – outside of, like, the top three or four kickers or ones that do something Oh, no. Ka- Kaimi Fairbairn. Kaimi Fairbairn, not Kai Forbath. Same initials. All right. The only reason we know so kickers fair. are who you have in your fantasy football league, and I can't imagine anybody has the Houston Texans kicker in their fantasy football league. So maybe it actually might be a good one. To have. Oh, my God. I actually was right. It it's, is Kaimi Fairbairn. Oh, KS. Yes. Good initials there. All right. Yeah. Uh, Adam, Ed and I talked about this yesterday, but I did want to get your thoughts on it. So Darren Waller, not expecting to play. He played all of six snaps against Kansas City before hamstring injury uh, took him out. He has not been very good when he has played this year. Effectively, four games, 16 catches, 175 yards, one touchdown. PFF has him as the 28th best tight end. Do you believe that the Raiders already regret giving Darren Waller that contract extension? No. And I think the Raiders probably have to look at this holistically and say, did we expect, like you and I talked about, Tyler, did we expect that Devontae Adams, Hunter Renfro, and Darren Waller were all going to be able to eat within the same offense? We weren't so sure about that. But I also think with Darren Waller, soft tissue injuries are a concern. And when you look at the extension, you have to fit it into the holistic sense of here are the cap numbers for the Raiders for next year. Derek Carr, $34.8 million. Max Crosby, $20.4 million. Colt Miller, 17.6. Chandler Jones, 19.4. Ugh, that's the one that really stands out. Devontae Adams, 14.4. And then Darren Waller at 12.6, along with Hunter Renfro at 13.3. The Raiders, for next year, already have $174 million committed to 30 players. That is the least amount of players that any team has under contract for next year, and they already have spent the ninth most money in the NFL. 
So I'm not sure it's necessarily just about the Darren Waller extension. It's about the Darren Waller extension among all the other extensions. We've uh, talked about the Golden Knights uh, and their stars and scrubs uh, roster construction this year. The Raiders are probably going to be a very extreme version of that in the NFL next season, too, given their cap numbers and the dead cap money that they have going into next season as well. All right, coming up next, we'll jump into some baseball as the Astros took a 2-0 lead over the Yankees. The idea ain't just to touch it. You know, you got to touch it in situations. we got to score. They're about as tough as there is to score against, but we gotta we got to figure out a way. It takes all of us from a game plan standpoint to, to every guy in that lineup just uh, – you know, doing their part to make it a little more difficult on them. And the one-two. Swing and a three-pointer from way downtown. It's good! You're sitting in the press box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas. Follow them on Twitter at Ed Graney and Bischoff underscore Tyler. Featuring Adam Candy. Later in the show, we are going to have some free Porta subs to give away, plus get you entered to win a Yeti cooler. Uh, next week, we have Elton John tickets uh, to give away. Stay tuned for that. And also, uh, later this hour, so coming up in, I don't know, about 20 minutes or so, uh, you're going to have, somebody's going to have a shot at $700, thanks to Dollar Loan Center. We're going to give you three NFL games. You just got to pick the winner of those three games. Nobody has done it this so far this year, so the money keeps rolling over, and this week we are up to 700 hundred dollars uh but in the alcs last night the astros beat the yankees three to two and the astros now have a 2-0 lead in the series adam is the alcs over yeah the alcs was over when it started and you and i agreed on this <laughs> like i'm not i'm not gonna come on here and, and give you a combative yankees fan and oh no they just need to get home no they're, they're not as good they weren't as good in the regular season they're not as good now. I did not have any expectations coming into this series. The Yankees have lived down to exactly what I expected out of them. I texted people last night who were asking me about this game and said, it is the same game every time these teams play in the playoffs. <laughs> every single time. The Yankees have lost these two games by a combined three runs. And in neither of those games did you really believe as a Yankees fan they were going to win. Because... They never seem to be able to get a hit against the Astros when they need one, and they've struck out 30 times in two games. So I had no confidence that the Yankees were going to be able to win this series. You said Houston in five to me via text the other day, and I said I don't disagree with you. So on the idea that the Yankees can't get a hit in the 30 strikeouts here, they uh, swung and missed at 16 Fromber Valdez curveballs yesterday, which... Uh, since they've been tracking this in 2008, it's the most swings and misses on one pitcher's curveball in a game since 2008. Uh, they struggled with Justin Verlander's curveball. Ryan Presley has gotten seven outs in this series. They haven't hit his curveball either. And it reminds me, back in 2017, Lance McCullers came out of the bullpen and threw 24 straight curveballs to close out game seven. Why can't the Yankees hit curveballs? Because those are really good curveballs. Because Framber Valdez had more strikeouts against his curveball than any pitcher had on any pitch in the major leagues this year. He had 122 strikeouts on his curveball. Ryan Presley, if you follow the spin metrics, is throwing up like 4,000 RPM curveballs. These are really good pitches that not a lot of people hit. So, yeah, the Yankees stand out because consistently they cannot get a hit when they need one. But at the same time, the Astros pitchers are really damn good. 
so my thoughts on the Yankees' path to a victory in this series were if they could split the first two in Houston, they would have a chance at winning games three and four in New York. And I think they're going to win at least one of three or four in New York because they have Garrett Cole and Nestor Cortez and they're at home. I'd be very surprised if the Astros won both of the next two games. But I think the Yankees' path to victory was split in Houston and then you'd have a legitimate shot at going up 3-1. At the very least, you'd be 2-2, making it a three-game series from there on out. But now that it's 2-0, it very much sets up for best-case scenario for the Yankees. They win the next two to get it to 2-2, and the problem for the Yankees is that after that, it goes back to Verlander, it goes back to Framber Valdez for 5-6, and six, where the Yankees have to go back to Jamison Tyon and Luis Severino. The Astros are set up, if this ends up in a, hey, best of three to finish it out, the Astros are in just such a much better position because of the pitching standpoint that even if the Yankees win the next two, it still seems like they're going to have such a huge mountain to climb to win two of the last three. Yeah, I, the Yankees would have to win four of the next five games to win the series, and we know that the only kind of team that can beat Houston four out of five games is like the Oakland A's this year. <laughs> they have to go against someone awful, and that's the, that's when they lose all of these games. And while that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, the Yankees have not shown that they can beat Houston on that level. Let's go back to the regular season. They played seven games against Houston. They never had the lead with a starting pitcher on the mound with a chance to close a game out with any pitcher on the mound, for that matter. They only won the two games on walk-offs. So, Ultimately, the New York Yankees needed to go into this series, first of all, healthy. They're not. And second of all, with arrested bullpen, which they didn't have. And then they pulled the ultimate arrogance in game one. I could not believe what oh, I, I was watching. It. it was great. That's what I would have done. In game one, it's tied 1-1 in the sixth inning. At that point, you have to look at it as, oh, crap. We did not expect in a game against Justin Verlander that we were going to be tied 1-1 and have a chance to win it. We better rip up our game plan and try to win this game because this is our best chance to win a game. Instead, Aaron Boone rolled out Clark Schmidt <laughs> and the corpse of Frankie Montas onto the mound, gave up three runs, and killed any chance of a comeback that they were going to have, and then talked about it later and said, yeah, our guys were really tired from Monday. Are you kidding me? You had a chance to win the game. It's the playoffs. And here the Yankees are saying, eh, we could probably afford to punt one and see what happens. No, you can't. You're playing against a team that's better than you. You can't afford to punt anything. And when you see an opportunity, you have to seize it. And this is where, Tyler, when guys like you and I talk about analytics and having to do the process repeatedly and having to stick to a plan in order for the percentages to work, well, the percentages got you into that situation. And at some point, you have to be willing to press the edge and say, we didn't expect to be here. Now we have to win this game. And then you take game two off. Then you can say, well, we do whatever we have to do in game two to just say, let's get through and get ourselves home and get ready for the rest of the series. Do you think the Yankees would have a better chance if they threw Frankie Montas because he did come from one of those terrible, no good teams like the Oakland A's, which, as you mentioned, they're the only team that swept the Astros this season in a three-game series, the Oakland A's. Uh, they should pitch Frankie Montas as many times as they can in this series. They'll probably win a couple. That'd be lovely. In fact, <laughs> I heard it touted that Frankie Montas had a sub-three ERA and this great success against Houston when he was pitching for Oakland. 
that's great. Is Frankie Montas also going to have the Oakland Coliseum where basically no ball is a guaranteed home run, where the Yankee Stadium, every ball is a guaranteed home run or a foul ball that gets out of play? Stop it. All right. Uh, we do need to talk about um, Aaron Judge's eighth inning flyout. Uh, down, Yankees down 3-2, runner on first in the eighth, and Aaron Judge uh, hits a line drive to right field, caught at the wall. Probably would have hit the top of the wall if Kyle Tucker had not caught it. Um, my favorite stat in baseball at the moment is every time we get a home run or a near home run, seeing stat cast come up and say, this would have been a home run in blank amount of ballparks. And the only place that that line drive would have been a home run would have been Yankee Stadium. So that game's in New York. Uh, the Yankees take the lead in the eighth inning last night. But after the game, um, Aaron Boone said that the roof being open uh, killed the Yankees because that home run he think or that he thinks that would have been a home run if the roof had been closed. Luis Severino, uh, he said the Astros got lucky because Alex Bregman's three-run home run only had an exit velocity of 91 miles an hour, and Aaron Judge's flyout was hit at 106 miles an hour off the bat. Did you take those to be whining complaints or did you take those to be valid and honestly just Aaron Boone and Luis Severino answering questions they were asked? Shut your damn mouth, (laughs) Aaron Boone. Shut your damn mouth, Luis Severino. Go win the game. Did both teams hit in the same ballpark? Yes. The roof was open for both teams, but it killed you. Oh, and now we're going to use exit velocity to explain away I'm the one who had a chance to get out of the inning without giving up any runs, and I left a ball that Bregman could hit? Stop it. Stop it. Look, Luis Severino truly made one bad pitch in the entire game. That was the only bad pitch he made, and Alex Bregman made him pay for it. And that's what great teams do, right? That's what makes the Astros a great team. They see a mistake, and they take advantage of it. I can't tell you how many mistakes the Yankees swung through. Glaber Torres alone yesterday. It was really difficult to watch as a Yankee fan. And so, yeah, I can look and say that Aaron Judge barreled two balls yesterday. One of them had an 8-10 expected batting average. One of them, the Kyle Tucker play, had a 9-10 expected batting average. But this is what happens in baseball. You can hit the ball as hard as you want, and if you hit it at somebody, sometimes that's the way things fall. All right, so Aaron Boone made a couple of lineup changes. He moved Harrison Bader up to the leadoff spot because Harrison Bader's now Randy Rosarino uh, 2.0, which, by the way, did you have the audio on for this game last night? I did. Okay. The, the we, you and I have a shared hate of Randy Rosarena. The damn first batter of the game. We get like two pitches in and like, ah, Harrison Bader's just like Randy Rosarena from 2020. Like, get out of here. I don't need to hear that name anymore. The Rays are gone. But Harrison Bader gets moved up to the leadoff spot. Uh, he brings in um, Oswald Peraza to play shortstop, made a couple changes. Is there anything Aaron Boone can do with the lineup? Because to me, it felt like he's there's not really a right answer for him. He's just sort of picking between sort of eh, options. And there's not really an answer for him with his lineup that's going to make a significant difference. Oh, there absolutely are things he can do to maximize his chances. There's nothing he's going to do that's going to make this a five-run game offense against Houston. But look at what they did in game one. They played Isaiah Kiner-Falefa in game one. That is not maximizing your lineup. Batting Josh Donaldson fifth is not maximizing your lineup. 
putting Matt Carpenter into the lineup so that you take Oswaldo Cabrera out and put Giancarlo Stanton in left field is not maximizing your lineup. Matt Carpenter has been to the plate eight times in the playoffs. He has struck out every one of them. In fact, in game Jesus. one, in game one, Donaldson and Carpenter came to the plate eight times. They struck out seven of them combined. And then again last night with a chance to switch up the lineup, he dropped Donaldson to sixth and then put Kyle freaking Higashioka hitting seventh. You put the two most likely strikeout guys you have next to each other. And guess what? It came back to hurt the Yankees again. So ultimately, there are things that they can do to make this lineup better, but they refuse to do them. So with the constraints that they choose to operate under, yeah, within those, then they're doing the most that they can do. All right, coming up next, we'll jump into some Golden Knights because they won again, beat the Jets 5-2 to two last night. No, I did not intend to do that. Um, you know, just lucky bounce. Um, just trying to, you know, go to Stoney on the backside there. Um, but, yeah, I mean, uh, usually, you know, you got to kind of get lucky to, you know, get something going. And uh, Stoney was joking with me and saying that maybe that's one we needed. So um, we've been snake bitten a bit. Like I was saying earlier, so hopefully, uh, you know, it's uh, the start We're back to the Press Box Morning Show with Ed Graney and Tyler Bischoff featuring Adam Candy. In about 10 minutes, we're going to take a caller with a shot to win $700. Thanks to Dollar Loan Center. But the Golden Knights beat the Winnipeg Jets last night 5-2. to two. You just heard Chandler Stevenson. He scored a goal by... Passing the puck across the ice, having it deflect off Brendan Dillon's skate and past uh, David Riddich into the Winnipeg net. Adam, you may have heard me give this um, take during the last couple of seasons. Uh, are you on board with me? Because I'm, I'm surprisingly having a hard time finding people to agree with me that hockey needs to adopt own goals. Like they do it in soccer. If a defenseman or anybody puts the puck into their own net, that that should go down as an own goal and not an actual goal for Chandler Stevenson. It's hard because in soccer, it happens generally so much slower than it does in hockey. Like in hockey, these things can be totally random. And, you know, you, you get a puck fired 100 miles an hour that goes off somebody's skate. Then you're going to call that an own goal. Uh, it's really hard to, to go with that. I, I know what you mean. Like Chandler Stevenson doesn't really necessarily deserve a goal for that. But it also just goes to show why we need to use advanced metrics and not just goals, assists, <laughs> etc. So I, the general rule in soccer uh, is that if you shoot and it's, it's on target, it's going to be on goal and it deflects off of a uh, defender or an opponent and goes into the net, you generally still get credit for the goal. However, if your shot or pass is not on target and it gets deflected into the net, it goes down as an own goal. And you're right. There would be some cases that would be harder, but I do think the last two games, the golden Knights have played. There are two clear cases that, Hey, that would be an own goal. Alec Martinez swatted one that was like 10 feet in the air into his own net. And then Chandler Stevenson plays a pass across the middle that hits Brendan Dillon in the skate and goes in. Those would be two very clear own goals. And I would just like to see them because the whole point of stats is to try to give us an accurate representation of what happened. And Chandler Stevenson didn't actually score a goal last night. He just shot one in off a defender skate on accident. He even admitted it afterwards. Um, so Golden Knights beat Winnipeg five to two. And we are still still super early in this season. But I feel pretty confident saying that the Golden Knights are going to be a playoff team 
simply because they're better than the bottom half of this league. They're better than the bad teams. And as long as they don't run into, you know, bad injury luck, right? If if Mark Stone and Jack Eichel play 60-something games or more this year and they get Stevenson and Carlson and um, Riley Smith to play a significant number of games, right? As long as they don't hit some ridiculous injury luck and as long as their goaltending doesn't fall completely off a cliff, they're going to make the playoffs simply because they're going to, more often than not, beat up on the Seattle, Chicago's, Winnipeg's, and maybe even the L.A.'s, teams that are also on that border there for the playoffs. I feel pretty confident saying this is a playoff team because they are simply better than the bottom 10 to 15 teams in the NHL, and they're going to take a ton of points from those teams, and that'll be enough to be in the playoffs. I'm going to make it even simpler than that, Tyler. I don't even know if it's about the opposition so much as it's about the one major question we have about the Golden Knights and the returns we have on it thus far. The goaltending's been good. The goaltending doesn't even have to be great. If the goaltending is even good, that is such an addition for a team that's not spending any money on its goaltending that the Golden Knights will be able to get by even with an injury or two, I think, elsewhere because this isn't the team that has $12 million of Marc-Andre Fleury and Robin Lanner invested in its goaltending. It's a team that has Aiden Hill and Logan Thompson right now, but those two guys have combined for goals saved above average rated of 7th and 8th thus far in hockey. And look, I know it's five games. It's no big deal, but it's five games of close to elite. Even if that settles into good, the Golden Knights are going to be just fine because in the end, We know that they're going to be able to generate offense with the stars that they have. We just didn't know whether or not they were going to be giving up goals at such a level that it was going to keep them from being able to win. Yeah, there's there's almost no way the goaltending stays as good as it has been. Both guys are over 930 in their save percentage. Like you said, both are in the top eight in goals saved above average so far this season. Like, there's almost no way it stays that good. We have a big enough sample size on Aiden Hill to suggest he's much, much closer to average, if not even below average, than what we've seen through two games. Logan Thompson, we actually don't have a very big sample size, and the sample size we do have suggests, ah, he is really good. So maybe this is Logan Thompson, but it'll get worse. But like you said, if it just regresses to, hey, they've got solid goaltending, above average goaltending, it's, it's a playoff team. And... This team, but here's the main thing for me is we've had the conversation about sort of expectations and, you know, what the media or what sort of projections expect the Golden Knights to be, which was a borderline playoff team uh, coming in versus what the owner of this team believes. He just talked to the athletic earlier this week, told Jesse Granger that he still expects them to win the Stanley Cup. It's two different expectations. And I think the playoff level one, they're going to hit. I, I think that's going to happen this year. The Stanley Cup one, we've seen them play one good team. One, I should say, not good, but one true Stanley Cup contender. They got run out of the uh, building against Calgary, right? They got absolutely dominated in that game. That's the part that I'm still curious to see because they got good goaltending in that one too. Logan Thompson was excellent against the Flames. That's what I'm curious to see when they play. You know, they play Colorado on Saturday. I know they just lost Gabriel Landeskog, but they play Colorado on Saturday. Like, those are the games that I think will have better answers for, okay, Is this team getting into the playoffs as like the three seed in the Pacific and maybe they win around and that's their ceiling? Or does this team have more? Because it's the potential's there. If you get Logan Thompson to play like this, like he has so far this year, and you stay fairly healthy, the potential is there with the high-end talent on this roster. 
that they can be a cup contender. They just need so many things to go right, and that's sort of an unrealistic thing to expect. Well, the other thing we were talking about with this team, Tyler, is what can we expect out of the third and fourth lines, right? Well, if they get themselves into a decent position for the playoffs, that doesn't matter as much anymore. You don't need to have those third and fourth lines when you're shortening the lineup come playoff time anyway. So I ultimately, this Golden Knights team has gone from, well, the road goes through Vegas, to, well, if they get a couple of things to break right, and that's who they are, and that's what Vegas Golden Knights fans should expect. They should expect a team that is going to get into the playoffs and is going to be an underdog in most series that it plays. There's no getting around that because there are too many really good teams in the West, right? You you have your Colorados. They're, I think St. Louis is probably still better than them. I think Edmonton is better than them. I think Calgary is better than them. I think the Kings are going to be competitive when it's all said and done. So ultimately, I just look at them and say there's no reason they can't win the Stanley Cup, but they are just not the team that you expect to do it. One thing I'm curious to see going forward what do they do with Phil Kessel? Because Phil Kessel, so far this season, uh, he has one point, one assist in five games. He still has uh, more penalty minutes than he does points so far on the season. He's playing with Jack Eichel. He's playing on what's the top line, Eichel, Riley Smith, and Phil Kessel. I don't think that we have seen much of anything through five games that suggests Phil Kessel should be on that top line. And especially if we're looking ahead to the playoffs. And like you said, when the, the, the rotation of lines becomes tightened up and you're playing your top lines more, I'm curious to see what happens with Phil Kessel, because I feel like there's going to be a point where they don't want Phil Kessel on their top line. They don't want Phil Kessel playing the most minutes uh, of most of their wingers, but I don't know that he fits on the third and fourth line. I don't know that he fits what Bruce Cassidy wants that third and fourth line to do, be, which is essentially go out there, don't give up a goal and steal some minutes for our top lines. I don't know that Phil Kessel fits that. If And if he's not producing with the top line, you kind of have to move him off of there anyway. All right. So we're five games into the season. And I'm and benching Phil problem, Kessel. Yeah. And if the problem is <laughs> Phil Kessel, things are going all right, right for the Golden Knights. Right? Like If that's the biggest problem they have, things will be fine. Right now, there are two teams in hockey that have four wins. One is Bruce Cassidy's Golden Knights, and the other is Bruce Cassidy's former Boston <laughs> Bruins. So right now, they're in a spot where they should be lucky to have such problems. All right, here we go. Dollar Loan Center, Friday football frenzy. There is $700 up for grabs right now. We're going to give you three NFL games. And if you can correctly pick the winner of those three games, you're going to win $700 because nobody has done this yet this season. There's been a loser every single week, and the money keeps rolling over. Phone number 702-364-1100. We're going to take caller number three. 702-364-1100. Caller number three is going to have a shot at 700 bucks. Earlier this week, I made a statement about playing football and the military and uh, it was a very poor choice of words and I just want to express that to any sentiments out there that uh, people may have taken it in a certain way so I apologize. It's the Press Box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas featuring Adam Candy. It is the Friday Football Frenzy sponsored by Dollar Loan Center offering signature loans up to $5,000. Stop by one of their 34 locations in Las Vegas and Henderson. We have $700 on the line. Nobody has been able to pull this off 
yet this season, and the money keeps rolling over. Uh, Steven is on the line. Steven is just going to have to pick the winners of three NFL games. If he can successfully pick three winners of these games, he will win $700. If not, that will roll over, and we will try with $800 next week. All right, Steven, your first game is Texans at Raiders. All right, good morning. I'm going to go with uh, home team on that one. Take the Raiders. All right. Second game for you is the Giants at the Jags. I'll take the Jaguars. All right. Jags at home in that one. And the final game, the Jets at Broncos. I can't believe I'm saying this. I'm going to take the Jets. Okay. The Jets, Jags, and Raiders. If those three teams win... Steven, you will win $700 thanks to Dollar Loan Center. If not, we'll have 800 to give away. Uh, Steven, good luck. Thanks. Have a great weekend, guys. So, Raiders, Jags, and Jets. Those are the three picks. Uh, if they all win, $700 for Steven. If not, somebody else will have a chance to win $800. It's Friday Football Frenzy, sponsored by Dollar Loan Center, offering signature loans up to $5,000. Stop by one of their 34 locations in Las Vegas and Henderson. Last night, we got... Uh, a big trade in the NFL. Doesn't happen too often, but the Carolina Panthers sent Christian McCaffrey to the 49ers. The 49ers sent a second, a third, a fourth, and a fifth round pick to Carolina for Christian McCaffrey. Adam, I'm pretty confident we are going to have the same opinion on this. Why do the 49ers keep wasting draft picks on running backs when they seem to be the perfect example of a team that just gets an undrafted guy to come in and run for 850 yards and they win with that guy? All right, I'm going to ask you a question first. Do you want me to make you the case for the 49ers making this trade? Or do you want me to make you the case for the 49ers not making this trade? Because it sounds like you want me to make you the case for why they don't make this trade. And I can do both for you somehow in this situation. I, okay, actually, do it for the 49ers to make the trade. I think that's the one I'm, I'm interested to hear where you go. The San Francisco 49ers look at the NFC and they see a conference that literally anybody could win. Because the Philadelphia Eagles are a paper tiger. They're okay but everybody's looking at them being 6-0 and and saying, oh, my God, how great they are. There are a lot of wins in there for the Philadelphia Eagles that just don't impress me that much. So are they good? Yes, they're good. Are they great? Are they elite? No, not close. Who's the next best team in the NFC? It's not Tampa right now. It's, the 49ers. it's not Green Bay right now. It is the 49ers. And <laughs> if you're the San Francisco 49ers, you say to yourselves, we need to lean into the variance of this. We need to lean into the fact that this might be the easiest year we've ever seen to get through the NFC. And if you're the 49ers, you look and see that you were a dropped interception from making the Super Bowl last year against a Rams team that did basically the same sort of thing that you're doing, right? They went out last year and they invested draft picks to go get Vaughn Miller. Now, if the San Francisco 49ers had gotten Von Miller, I'd feel a lot better about them than if they had gotten Christian McCaffrey because the fundamentals of this trade are patently insane. Now, why would you go out and do this? You go out and do this because you didn't go get a running back. You went out and you got yourself a guy who I think they're going to deploy more as a receiver than as a running back. If Christian McCaffrey gets 15 to 20 carries a game, then this was an absolutely insane trade. If Christian McCaffrey gets six or seven carries a game and eight or nine receptions a game, 
then I think you can at least make a case that San Francisco tried to make its offense that much better. Does, okay, does the redundancy, the overlap with Debo Samuel, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because they have the guy they can give the ball to six or seven times and throw to eight or nine games. And I can see the argument for, well, now you have two of those guys and you're going to be even harder to defend, but also the argument for, well, you can't really do that with two guys and be as effective. Like, it's not necessarily just completely additive to put Christian McCaffrey with Debo Samuel and they both continue to do what you expect. Like, does that fit make sense to you or is that fit going to be an overlap that sort of kills off some of each of those players' value? Now I'll make you the case as to why this doesn't make any (laughs) sense at all because what it does ultimately is this takes the ball away from Debo Samuel. It takes it away from George Kittle. It takes it away from Brandon Ayuk. And this whole offense is built around yards after catch, right? And I'm going to give uh, Kevin Cole from PFS some credit on this one because I'm kind of cribbing his theory a little bit here to say no matter what Christian McCaffrey does, it doesn't necessarily add anything to the offense when he's taking those touches away from other great players. And if he's taking them away from those players in situations where they're able to create a lot more easy yardage because Christian McCaffrey is generally getting the ball closer to the line of scrimmage. So if you're the Niners and you decide to go 21 personnel with two running backs, right? Ted Wynn pointed out that they're basically going to have five guys who are going to individually create a matchup problem when it's Debo, McCaffrey, Kittle, Ayuk, and I think you could probably even say, uh, you know, you could line Kyle Juszczyk up or maybe Jawan Jennings causes you a problem somewhere. Here's the biggest issue with all of that, by the way. Sorry, Tyler. The one biggest issue with all of that is it's still Jimmy Garoppolo getting them the ball. And Jimmy Garoppolo this year is the 21st rated pro football focus passer. If the guy getting them the ball is still Jimmy Garoppolo, you're not taking advantage of all those weapons. It was actually Jared that wanted to say something, but uh, now he's cut himself off. Well, okay. I, he The point I was going to make was basically what he ended on, which was... Jimmy G. Yes. I was going to say Wildcat. You run the Wildcat. Yeah, they're gonna, they definitely are inside the five. Um, should the Raiders trade Josh Jacobs for a second, third, a fourth, and a fifth? Hell yeah! <laughs> <laughs> like that Josh was, McDaniel should drive him to the new city for that. That was my, one of my thoughts. I was like, well, if McCaffrey goes for that, the Raiders should should probably be calling this. They should, probably should have called the 49 and said, hey, we'll send you Jacobs. You can keep your fifth. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll keep the fifth. The Rams and Denver said no to this pick haul. The Rams <laughs> and Denver and the Niners did this. Ah, great trade. Christian McCaffrey, Debo Samuel. That'd be fun.